ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. You're going to tell us tonight about Autumn, which is a book that has come rather harder on the heels than how to be both than I thought it would, but also transpires to have quite a sort of upsetting in the making of it. Do you just want to say a little bit about it? Um, can everyone hear me? Is my mic working? Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, it was. It was. It was. It wasn't that there was an upsetting in the in the, the making of it, other than the the kind of the, the the shock of the new or the shock of the contemporary. Um, I was uh, you know, twenty years ago. Uh, I thought I would one day probably write a quartet, which was a seasonal quartet at some point, if I carried on being a writer and if it worked out for me. Um, and then after I finished, how to be both. Um, I thought maybe this is now the time for the, you know, the quartet, so I'll start thinking about the quartet. So I began to think about it, and I began to kind of write towards it, and thought I would probably start with autumn. And um, the idea of writing a quartet that was particularly about the seasons was always about the relationship that time has to us in all its layers. In other words, the very, very contemporary, and at the same time, the way that, you know, if we come into a season, we suddenly realise how very stratified we are. You know, the first time we sense a season change, we, we, we kind of act like trees. We kind of, we kind of spatially become ourselves. We remember all the autumns, all the springs, all the first time we knew it was summer because the air had changed. That all the way through our lives, or things just pop into your head from nowhere, which belong to the seasons in your time makeup and your seasonal makeup. So it was, it was about that stratified being, and at the same time, about the way that you know we're suggested to us, and we're kind of meant to take life on that linear path which goes from birth to death with all the stuff in the middle consecutively, which, yeah, that's what a life looks like in a timeline, but it's not what a life looks like or feels like to live. Mm. Um, so it was about those, the relationship of that. So the idea of these books, which I talked to um, Simon, my, my publisher, about, um, was that they would be really contemporary. They would be short novels which came out really contemporarily, if that's a, mm. a, a, a word, so that they would be published, because we knew we could do this with How To Be Both. We published How To Be Both very fast and very beautifully. And I thought, gosh, you spend a lot of time faffing around with publication, you know, because by the time you get to the book, once the book's come out, it's, it feels kind of dead if you're the writer. It feels like something which is so fixed and it's, you know, it's really hard to talk about. So I said, what if we tried to do, what if we... We tried to do, we made sure these books were kind of fast on their feet, little mercurial wings on their feet. We made sure that they were published very close to their being written so that there was something that was Mm. contemporary about them. What I didn't expect was what happened here this summer, which was was the the vote, um, which has really changed everything. And it's not just changed everything for people in this country. It's changed changed things internationally and it's changed things in in a way which none of us could have foreseen. So there were things in place in the book which were already, you know, about the things which the book's about, about divisions in the world and about the ways in which we're changing our notion of uh, borders and about and uh, countries and identities. And then this ha- happened. And then I was, what was I, two, two-thirds of the way through the, the script when I realised that this manuscript, when I realised that this was probably going to happen. So I wrote to Simon, my publisher, and said, can I have an extra month till the end of July before I hand in the book so that I can just allow it to be as contemporary as it's demanding that it be. 
Uh, and he said, a miraculous, yes. So I did. So I worked like anything uh, with it um, to, 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 to hone it as, and to shift it. And it wasn't that, that wasn't too hard to do because the things were already in place, but I wanted to get it absolutely uh, kind of chiseledly right. Mm. Um, and, he, and here we are, and it's a beautiful. I mean, I'd quite, what the miracle of it to me is the beautifulness of the actual book, which can be produced in that amount of time. Um, I just think it's amazing. I hope the book inside the book holds up to it. Um, but Ali, in the kind of prosaically sort of linear business of writing, you say that some things were in place. Yeah. I mean, how much of the book had you got when such a seismic thing happened? It does, it's not about a matter of just updating. It's oh, no, a, no. a seismic shift. It's not like that. It's not like you've got a, a number of pages and those pages are the number of the book. It's a, it's a, a book is more cunning and more alive than that to deal with as a, as a, you know, as a, as a person in dialogue with a book. Um, so the, so that it, I mean, it changed utterly, and at the same time, there's lots of things in there which I'd already written. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, I simply had to re-ask of it, uh, you know, it, it's which angle it would, you know, it, you know, which angle it was pulling towards, and it was already pulling towards it. So I'd, all I had to do was listen, if you like, more closely to the communication between the notion of the book and the notion of the world. And then you just, and then I just had to get up really, really early every day and <laughs> worked really, really hard till you know, till I, till I was exhausted, and then do it again, and then do it again, and then, and then, I, and then, it, but it, but this time it's worked, so I'm going to try to touch wood, so it don't happen again. All your books have that that sense of exploded time of of the non-linearity of our okay. experience of yeah. living. Yeah. Um, this book, perhaps even more obviously, because there are numerous stories in it. Um, and we cut and jump, not even just from chapter to chapter, but within, you know, from line to line sometimes. Okay. How did that? It, it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't even a question of the form it would take. It was always going to take that form, which I'm now going to introduce you to um, Dr. Sue Tate, who is here tonight and who is a, a Pauline Boaty expert. And she wrote to me just yesterday and said that she thought the book had collage form. And I think that, I think mm. it does have... I, th I think you're right, Sue. Um, if, you, if, if you know about Pauline Boaty or you want to know about Pauline Boaty, Sue's your person to talk to and she's here tonight. I can't believe she's come. It was exciting. Um, thank you for coming. Um, I, I, the, everything in the book, which is about Boaty the painter, really springs from pretty much from everything that, that all the work that Sue has done for the last two decades, really. Yeah, two decades in, in placing Boaty in the, in the canon which, in which she, from which she just vanished. Yeah, after death. Anyway, um, collage form is exactly what it was about. And in collage form, you have all the power of juxtaposition and all the power of changed perspective and all the possibility of cut up yet communal. Um, mm -hmm. Something from somewhere else will meet something from actually somewhere else and they will coexist. And they will coexist in a way that will be, uh, because coexistence is always exciting. This is kind of distinct but obviously related to what you were doing in How To Be Both when it was a question of sort of overlaying it was one story that had been overlaid in time yeah. and this seems along the same lines but just taking a sort of even more kind of complicating view of it. It's not complicating at all it's just like life is when you get up in the morning and you go down for your breakfast or whatever it is you do you're existing in the present moment but you're existing in all the other moments of all the kind of the kind of what you say the drop down into your life and beyond your life to the drop down <laughs> behind that life and then you're also existing to some extent in the future because so time is just naturally layered it's not complicated at all if we if we allowed ourselves to think of narrative and the ways we tell stories and the way we narrate if you like ourselves mm. uh, as collaged layer layered uh, the, as the collaged layered beings that we are then it just would be true mm -hmm. rather than expecting there to be some payoff halfway down the linear line mm -hmm. with a life and then if it does happen yay but was that it and if it doesn't happen when's it gonna happen you know there's, the, there's something about the suspense of a life and the pressures that are put on us now as to what as to the kind of life we're meant to be living on this fast surface world um, that if we just took one step back and re-looked at the the shape or the dimension that time actually has in our lives. Mm. We just, we wouldn't have to listen or, li or live, we just don't have to live like that. Just, we don't, in fact we don't, we don't live like that. Are you going to read a little bit? No, I'm not going to. No. You are. <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. Um, have, have all your questions been rhetorical? 
And that'd no. be an answer in there. Well, you could, you could have answered that. Um, the audience could have answered that. I think the, the parts that you're going to read give a sense of how many know, stories they do, they flow do. into one yeah, another. Yeah, they give, they give a sense of a, 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 a couple of them. Yeah. Okay. Old Queen. Elizabeth's mother said under her breath. Why him, she said at the more normal level of voice, because he's our neighbour, Elizabeth said. It was a Tuesday evening in April in 1993. Elizabeth was eight years old. But we don't know him, her mother said. We're supposed to talk to a neighbour about what it means to be a neighbour, then make a portrait in words of a neighbour, Elizabeth <laughs> said. You're meant to come with me. I'm meant to make up two or three questions and ask them to a neighbour for the portrait, and you're meant to accompany me. I told you, I told you on Friday, you said we would, it's for school. <clears throat> her mother was doing something to the makeup on her eyes. About what, her mother said, about all the arty art he's got in there. We've got pictures, Elizabeth said. Are they? Arty art. She looked at the wall behind her mother, the picture of the river and the little house, the picture of the squirrels made from bits of real pine cone, the posters of the dancers by Henry Matisse, the poster of the woman and her skirt and the Eiffel Tower, the blown up real photographs of her grandmother and grandfather from when her mother was small, the one of her, ones of her mother when her mother was a baby, the ones of herself as a baby. That stone with a hole through the middle of it, in the middle of his front room, her mother was saying, and that's very arty art. I wasn't being nosy, I was passing, the light was on. I thought you were supposed to be collecting and identifying fallen leaves. That was like three weeks ago, Elizabeth said, are you going out? Can't we phone Abby and ask the questions over the phone, her mother said. But we don't live next to Abby anymore, Elizabeth said. It's supposed to be someone who's a neighbour right now. It's supposed to be in person, an in-person interview, and I'm supposed to ask about what it was like, where the neighbour grew up, and what life was like when the neighbour was my age. People's lives are private, her mother said. You can't just go traipsing into their lives asking all sorts of questions. And anyway, why does the school want to know these things about our neighbours? <laughs> They just do, Elizabeth said. She went and sat on the top step of the stairs. She'd end up being the new girl who hasn't done the right homework. Her mother was going to say any minute now that she was off to do shopping at the late night Tesco's and that she'd be back in half an hour. In reality, she'd be back in two hours. She would smell of cigarettes. There'd be nothing brought back from Tesco's. It's about history and being neighbours, Elizabeth said. He probably can't speak very good English, her mother said. You can't just go bothering old, frail people. He's not frail, Elizabeth said. He's not foreign. He's not old. He doesn't look in the least imprisoned. He doesn't look what, her mother said. Has to be done for tomorrow, Elizabeth said. I have an idea, her mother said. Why don't you make it up? Pretend you're asking him the questions. Write down the answers you think he'd give. It's supposed to be true, Elizabeth said. It's for news. They'll never know, her mother said. Make it up. The real news is always made up anyway. The real news is not made up, Elizabeth said. It's the news. That's a discussion we'll have again when you're a bit older, her mother said. Anyway, it's much harder to make things up. I mean, to make them up really well, well enough so that they're convincing, it requires much more skill. Tell you what, if you make it up and it's convincing enough to persuade Miss Simmons that it's true, I'll buy you that Beauty and the Beast thing. The video, Elizabeth said. Really? Uh-huh, her mother said, pivoting on one foot to look at herself from the side. Uh, in any case, our video player is broken, Elizabeth said. If you persuade her, her mother said... I'll splash out on a new one. Do you mean it? Elizabeth said. And if Miss Simmons gives you a hard time because it's made up, I'll ring the school and assure her it's not made up, it's true, her mother said. OK? Elizabeth sat down at the computer desk. If he was very old, the neighbour, he didn't look anything like the people who were meant to be it on TV, who always seemed as if they were trapped inside a rubber mask. Not just a face-sized mask, but one that went the length of the body from head to foot. And if you could tear it off or split it open, it was like you'd find an untouched unchanged young person inside who'd simply step cleanly out of the old fake skin like the skin after you take out the inner banana. When they were trapped inside that skin, though, the eyes of people, at least the people in all the films and comedy programmes, looked desperate, like they were trying to signal to outsiders without giving the game away that they'd been captured by empty aged selves, which were now keeping them alive inside them for some sinister reason, like those wasps that lay eggs inside other creatures, so their hatchlings will have something to eat, except the other way round, the old self feeding off the young one. All that was left would be the eyes, pleading, trapped behind the eye holes. Her mother was at the front door. Bye, she called back soon. Elizabeth ran through to the hall. If I want to write the word elegant, how do I spell it? The front door closed. Next evening, after supper, 
Her mother folded the newsbook jotter open at the page and went out the back door and down the garden to the still sunny back fence where she leaned over and waved the jotter in the air. Hi, she said. Elizabeth watched from the back door. The neighbour was reading a book and drinking a glass of wine in what was left of the sun. He put his book down on the garden table. Oh, hello, he said. I'm Wendy Demand, she said. I'm your next door neighbour. I've been meaning to come and say hi since my daughter and I moved in. Daniel Gluck, he said from the chair. Lovely to meet you, Mr. Gluck, her mother said. Daniel, please, he said. He had a voice off old films where things happened to well-dressed warplane pilots in black and white. And well, I really don't want to bother you, her mother said, but it suddenly struck me, and I hope you don't mind, and you don't think it's cheeky. I thought you might like to read this little piece that my daughter wrote about you for a school exercise. <laughs> about me, the neighbour said. It's lovely, her mother said, a portrait in words of our next door neighbour. Not that I came out of it very well myself, but I read it and then I saw you were out in the garden and I thought, well, I mean, it's charming. I mean, it puts me to shame, but it's very fetching about you. Elizabeth was appalled. She was appalled from head to foot. It was like the notion of appalled had opened its mouth and swallowed her whole, exactly like an old age rubberized skin would. She stepped back behind the door where she couldn't be seen. She heard the neighbour scraping his chair on the flagstone. She heard him coming over to her mother at the fence. When she came home from school next day, the neighbour was sitting cross-legged on his garden wall right next to the front gate she needed to go through to get into the house. She stopped stock still at the corner of the road. She would walk past and pretend she didn't live in the house they lived in. He wouldn't recognise her. She would be a child from another street altogether. She crossed the road as if she were walking past. He unfolded his legs and he stood up. When he spoke, there was nobody else in the road, so it was definitely to her. There was no getting out of it. Hello, he said from his own side of the road. I was hoping I might run into you. I'm your neighbour. I'm Daniel Gluck. I am not actually Elizabeth Demand, she said. She kept walking. Ah, he said, you're not. I see. I am someone else, she said. She stopped on the other side of the street and turned. It was my sister who wrote it, she said. I see, he said. Well, I had something I wanted to tell you regardless. What, Elizabeth said. It's that I think your surname is originally French, Mr. Gluck said. I think it comes from the French words de and monde put together, which mean, when you translate it, of the world. Really, Elizabeth said. We always thought it meant like the asking kind of demand. Mr. Gluck sat down on the curb and wrapped his arms round his knees. He nodded. Of the world or in the world? I think so, yes, he said. It might also mean of the people, like Abraham Lincoln said, of the people, by the people, for the people. He wasn't old. She was right. Nobody, truly old, sat with their legs crossed or hugged their knees like that. Old people couldn't do anything except <laughs> sit in front rooms as if they'd been stunned by stun guns. <laughs> I know that my, uh, my sister's Christian name, I mean the name Elizabeth, is meant to mean something about making promises to God, Elizabeth said, which is a little difficult because I'm not completely sure I believe in one. I mean, she does. I mean, doesn't. Something else we have in common, he said, she and I. In fact... According to the history I've happened to live through, I'd say that her first name, Elizabeth, means that one day she'll probably, quite unexpectedly, against the odds, find herself being made queen. A queen, Elizabeth said, like you. <laughs> um, the neighbour said. I myself think it would be really good, Elizabeth said, because of all the arty art you get to have all around you all the time. Ah, the neighbour said. Right. But does the name Elizabeth still mean that, th that thing, even if it's spelt with an S, not a Z, Elizabeth said. Oh, yes, indubitably, he said. Elizabeth crossed to the same side of the road as the neighbour. She stood a little distance away. What does your name mean, she said. It means I'm lucky and happy, he said, the gluck part. And that if, if I'm ever thrown into a pit that's full of hungry lions, I'll survive. That's the first name. And if you ever have a dream and you don't know what it means, you can ask me. My first name also designates an ability to interpret dreams. Can you? Elizabeth said. She sat down on her own piece of curb only slightly along from the neighbour. Actually, I'm extremely bad at it, but I can make up something useful, entertaining, perspicacious and kind, he said. We have this in common, you and I, as well as the capacity to become someone else if we so choose. You mean you have it in common with my sister, Elizabeth said. <laughs> I, I do, the neighbour said. Very pleased to meet you both, finally. <laughs> How do you mean finally, Elizabeth said. We only moved here six weeks ago. The lifelong friends, he said. We sometimes wait a lifetime for them. He held his hand out. She got up, crossed the distance and held her own hand out. He shook her hand. See you later, unexpected queen of the world, not forgetting the people, he said. Shall I keep going? Pause. It's just over a week since the vote. 
The bunting in the village where Elizabeth's mother now lives is up across the high street for its summer festival, plastic reds and whites and blues against a sky that's all threats. And though it's not actually raining right now and the pavements are dry, the wind rattling the plastic triangles against themselves means it sounds all along the high street like rain is hammering down. The village is in a sullen state. Elizabeth passes a cottage not far from the bus stop whose front from the door to across above the window has been painted over with black paint and the words go and home. People either look down, look away or stare her out. People in the shops when she buys some fruit, some ibuprofen and a newspaper for her mother speak with a new kind of detachment. People she passes on the streets on the way from the bus stop to her mother's house regard her and each other with a new kind of loftiness. Her mother, who tells her when she gets there that half the village isn't speaking to the other half of the village and that this makes almost no difference to her since no one in the village speaks to her anyway or ever has, though she's lived here nearly a decade now, in this her mother is being a touch melodramatic, is doing some hammering herself, nailing to the kitchen wall an old ordnance survey map of where she now lives, which she bought yesterday in a shop that used to be the local electrician's business and electrical appliances store and is now a place selling plastic starfish pottery-looking things, artisan gardening tools and canvas gardening gloves that look like they've been modelled on a 1950s utilitarian utopia. The kind of shop with the kinds of things that look nice cost more than they should and persuade you that if you buy them you'll be living the right kind of life, her mother says, between lips still holding two little nails. The map is from 1962. <clears throat> her mother has drawn a red line with a sharpie all round the coast, marking where the new coast is. She points to a spot quite far inland on the new red line. That's where the World War II pillbox fell into the sea ten days ago, she says. She points to the other side of the map, furthest from the coast. That's where the new fence has gone up, she says. Look, she's pointing to the word common in the phrase common land. Apparently, a fence three metres high with a roll of razor wire along the top of it has been erected across a stretch of land not far from the village. It has security cameras on posts all along it. It encloses a piece of land that's got nothing in it but firs, sandy flats, tufts of long grass, scrappy trees, little clumps of wildflower. Go and see it, her mother says. I want you to do something about it. What can I do about it, Elizabeth says. I'm a lecturer in history of art. Her mother shakes her head. You'll know what to do, she says. You're young. Come on, we'll both go. They walk along the single-track road. The grass is high on either side of them. Can't believe he's still alive, you're Mr Gluck, her mother is saying. That's what everybody in the Maltings Care Providers PLC pretty much says too, Elizabeth says. He was so old back then, her mother says. He must be more than a hundred. He must be. He was 80 back in the 90s. He used to walk up the street, remember, all bowed with age. I don't remember that at all, Elizabeth says. Like he carried the weight of the world on his back, her mother says. You always said he was like a dancer, Elizabeth says. An old dancer, her mother says. He was all bent over. You used to say he was lithe, Elizabeth says. Then she says, oh dear God. In front of them, slicing straight across a path Elizabeth's walked several times since her mother came to live here, and blocking the way as far as the eye can see, no matter which way she turns her head, is a mass of chain-link metal. Her mother sits down on the churned-up ground near the fence. I'm tired, she says. It's only two miles, Elizabeth says. That's not what I mean, she says. I'm tired of the news. I'm tired of the way it makes things spectacular that aren't and deals so simplistically with what's truly appalling. I'm tired of the vitriol. I'm tired of the anger. I'm tired of the meanness. I'm tired of the selfishness. I'm tired of how we're doing nothing to stop it. I'm tired of how we're encouraging it. I'm tired of the violence there is, and I'm tired of the violence that's on its way that's coming that hasn't happened yet. I'm tired of liars. I'm tired of sanctified liars. I'm tired of how those liars have let this happen. I'm tired of how those liars... I'm tired of having to wonder whether they did it out of stupidity or did it on purpose. I'm tired of lying governments. I'm tired of people not caring whether they're being lied to anymore. I'm tired of being made to feel this fearful. I'm tired of animosity. I'm tired of pusillanimosity. I don't think that's actually a word, Elizabeth says. I'm tired of not knowing the right words, her mother says. <laughs> Elizabeth thinks of the bricks of the old broken-up pillbox under the water, the air bubbles rising from their pores when the tide covers them. I'm a brick underwater, she thinks. Her mother, sensing her daughter's attention, wandering, sags momentarily towards the fence. Elizabeth, who is tired of her mother already, and she's only an hour and a half into the visit, points to the little clips placed at different positions along the wire. Careful, she says. I think it's electrified. All across the country, there was misery and rejoicing. All across the country, what had happened whipped about by itself as if a live electric wire had snapped off a pylon in a storm and was whipping about in the air above the trees, the roofs, the traffic. All across the country, people felt it was the wrong thing. 
All across the country, people felt it was the right thing. All across the country, people felt they'd really lost. All across the country, people felt they'd really won. All across the country, people felt they'd done the right thing and other people had done the wrong thing. All across the country, people looked up Google, what is EU? All across the country, people looked up Google, move to Scotland. All across the country, people looked up Google Irish passport applications. All across the country, people called each other cunts. All across the country, people felt unsafe. All across the country, people were laughing their heads off. All across the country, people felt legitimised. All across the country, people felt bereaved and shocked. All across the country, people felt righteous. All across the country, people felt sick. All across the country, people felt history at their shoulder. All across the country, people felt history meant nothing. All across the country, people felt like they counted for nothing. All across the country, people had pinned their hopes on it. All across the country, people waved flags in the rain. All across the country, people drew swastika graffiti. All across the country, people threatened other people. All across the country, people told people to leave. All across the country, the media was insane. All across the country, politicians lied. All across the country, politicians fell apart. All across the country, politicians vanished. All across the country, promises vanished. All all across the country, money vanished. All across the country, social media did the job. All across the country, things got nasty. All across the country, nobody spoke about it. All across the country, nobody spoke about anything else. All across the country, racist bile was general. All across the country, people said it wasn't that they didn't like immigrants. All across the country, people said it was about control. All across the country, everything changed overnight. All across the country, the haves and the have-nots stayed the same. All across the country, the usual tiny percent of the people made their money out of the usual huge percent of the people. All across the country, money, 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 money. All across the country, no money, no money, no money, no money. All across the country, the country split in pieces. All across the country, the countries cut adrift. All across the country, the country was divided. A fence here, a wall there, a line drawn here, a line crossed there, a line you don't cross here, a line you better not cross there, a line of beauty here, a line dance there, a line you don't even know exists here, a line you can't afford there, a whole new line of fire, line of battle, end of the line here, there. Thank you so much. That gives us a flavour of, of the different lines that you're treading in the book. I mean, that last section that you read immediately brings to mind the title of your last novel, How to Be Both, which is essentially, um, at its core, how to deal with ambiguity and uncertainty and how unknowing. How to be multiple. Mm -hmm. How to be multiple. How to be more than one thing or two things. How to be multiple. How, how, we, how, we, how we are. <laughs> Yeah. But that, that yeah. part that you've just read out with its incredible sort of galloping, marching, um, almost like Auden sort of rhythm. Oh, that's nice. I hope Auden won't mind you saying that. He will. Yeah. He'll be fine. Um, just tells us that things are actually opposed, that there is no sort of common ground, that there is a loss of ambiguity. No, there is, there is a common ground. It's all across the country. I mean, there is. We live, we, we're, all, we're all sharing a state of paradox, um, division. Uh, and that's what that that piece, which is very early on in the book, which is mm. about what we do about divisions, how we go about divisions, whether we can actually heal divisions, what, what, the, what, what the uses and the abuses of division are. Mm. Yeah. Going back to the first part that you read, yeah. or was the elderly person slightly, or older person slightly marginalised or slightly odd, and the child, that is just a pairing that you come back to over and over again, don't you? I'm thinking of the accidental there, but for the... Where, it's not in the accidental. There's a child, don't know. No, they, she, she's 13, you know. Oh, I think yeah, she's, I thought she's, she's, she's Amber, I think of her as a child. Amber's like 20, I suppose she is. I yeah. think of her as a child. I suppose so. Um, no, I, I don't know, Alex. I suppose, I suppose so, in there, but for her as well. Um, I think the thing with... Um, the I mean, this is... In, in, in many ways, this is also an unexpected love story, this book. Um, and, it, and I, you know... The, the loves and the relationships in our lives take all sorts of forms and they, they ape and they go towards the things which we imagine that they, they are the shapes for, the archetypes for. And of course, they're much more multiple than that, you know. So, yeah. um, just tell us a little bit about that. Another thing that came to mind when you were reading that okay. bit where um, she's got to be terribly concerned with her neighbour because she's got to describe her neighbour. She's got to sort of make some kind of attempt at sort of a reckoning with him. Um, at this point, he knows nothing about that. And it struck me that it was another time that it comes up against another of those oppositions in your work. 
your interest in surveillance and how we are looked at sometimes, and your interest in the need to be attentive to other people. All right. Well, that's a lovely thing to say. Um, I, I have a, a kind of four... This is the first time Elizabeth, the girl who's also Elizabeth the woman in the book, she's in all her states, this is the first time she meets uh, the neighbour, Daniel Gluck. Um, I have a, a kind of pre-sense uh, that she's already been staring in his windows at the art. And later on when she writes a piece, which is the portrait of the neighbour, she says mm. something you know, like what it, must, what it feels like for her to walk past the door of someone from whose house music is always playing, which she's kind of drawn. I mean, she's she's drawn to something which she knows is different from herself. Mm. Is, is mm. simply it. It's, yeah. And it's yeah. some kind of um, yeah. additional life to the life that she has with her mother. I mean, we see it much later on. We see it at various points in her life when it's also an escape from other kinds of things that she's sort of trapped in, don't we? And Daniel, at this point, is in a care home bed, yeah. asleep. Uh, looks comatose. Can't quite tell whether he's whether he's there or not. She goes and sits and reads books next to him and eventually starts actually reading out to him uh, Dickens's uh, Tale of Two yeah. Cities. Um, and it's the question, I mean, the notion of autumn in itself, and this is one of the reasons that um, the artist Pauline Bote slips, has always been at the back, actually, of, of the book I knew I would write about this season, um, is that, and also Keats, and it's, the, and it's, it's, it's related, obviously, to... to figures who live such, such short lives and then who leave such fruition um, up against all the odds mm -hmm. <clears throat> and up against the odds of I mean their own up against the odds of their own losses are the the fruitions of their mm -hmm. spirit mm -hmm. as it were um, Pauline Boaty's life was very short Boaty is mm -hmm. is a uh, was is the only female pop artist in the UK um, <clears throat> she lived she died at the age of 28 and she left a small body. She left quite a big body of work, which all disappeared. And there's a small body of work left now, which has been found and reclaimed. And um, and Bodhi is just astonishing as a figure. <clears throat> she stands for a point at which those divisions were coming down. In fact, she's one of the reasons 19, early 60s it became possible for women because she was one of the pioneers of changing the shapes of what it was possible for a girl or a woman to be at that point mm -hmm. in time. She just blew it out of the water, and the 60s helped her blow it out of the water, but she helped the 60s change. By the time she died, the 60s were ready for change, in, in a way. And I think that about all those women, I think, about, I think if anyone here hasn't read Jeremy Gavron's book about his mother, Hannah Gavron, called Women at the Edge of Time, she was an absolute, oh my goodness, we were, what, a, what a figure she was. She was a, 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 a writer, a sociologist. She wrote the first sociological book about working class and lower middle class women called The Captive Wife. She was about to publish it. All her friends told her, you're mad. Nobody wants to read this. It isn't relevant. These are her female friends as well as her male friends. And she, I mean, she died tragically. Um, she, she took her own life along with, and it was, it was common. It was common for, you know, she was, she was ahead of her time and it, it, I mean, round the corner from where Plath had done the same oh, thing. There was a oh. point at which if you were pushing that hard, were you crazy? Were you insane? Or were you actually going to make it possible for all of us, all of us, no matter what gender we are here today? But it was really her life and Bodhi's life. It was life. just about not being given a space to be able to, to do just, what you wanted Bodhi to do. just took the space. That's what's astonishing about her. She just, you know, she made the space. She, she made the art that she chose to make, she made the space that nobody was going to make for her. <clears throat> By doing that, she pushed back the space for everybody, for all of us, um, and for everybody at that time. And was, she, was, she was an astonishing figure, a, a, a bright, hugely intelligent, witty force who passed from being an artist into more popular culture. She became a, 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 a theatre actor and a film actor. She was the model for the character of Liz, who Julie Christie plays in Billy Lyre. And if you watch that film nowadays and you think of Boti as that figure, at that point, 1963, 62, 63, um, uh, 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 Julie Christie swings through the streets, swinging her bag like this, and everybody looks at her because she's an absolute anomaly, a woman on her own wandering about, actually on her own terms. Uh, and it's you know she she was the model. She talked to Tom Courtney about it. She advised him on the film. She uh, was pals with Bob Dylan before anyone knew who Bob Dylan was. She was a dancer on Ready Steady Go. Plus, she was the first ever only female British pop artist. So that force of pushing down, getting rid of the divisions, making it better, making it better, making making the you know taking the initiative to to change things for the better.
is at the back of I, you know there was I couldn't write this book unless it had its root in that uh, I think and that, and so I mean in a way when the, when Brexit happened and when the contemporary was a question that I had to answer with the book I blessed my luck at having one foot in the sixties from which a figure from like Boti had you know had given me us that chance gift inheritance to know not to lose famously how to be both started life as you seeing a picture yeah. in a magazine and mm. then actually going and having to track it down becoming absolutely captivated by it and discovering mm. by the by its nature its freeze nature yeah. that there was a, a way to talk about layers of time um, and this also, Pauline Boaty did come down to a particular painting, a vanished painting, didn't no, it? No, it didn't, or, it didn't. It happened, it happened more um, tangentially than, than with How to Be Both, which actually I'd started with How to Be Both with the notion of structure, a fresco structure. I didn't know what fresco it would be, because I didn't know anything about the Renaissance. I thought it would probably be something really famous, like a, a Della Francesca, but then happened to see a fresco which just was so beautiful that I had to go, you know, I, you know, crossed the, the countries to see it and wanted to in a way that I, don't, I haven't ever done before in my life. So it was extraordinary. But so it started structurally and to some extent um, um, Autumn, uh, <coughs> I knew Autumn would be concerned with Boti and to some extent concerned with Keats because of those short lives and the notion of, as Keats says a beautiful thing, um, <coughs> which I put as an epitaph, he says, um, an epigraph rather, he says, if I'm destined to be happy with you here, how short is the longest life? You know, and it's true. Life is, life passes so fast, no matter what length our life is. There's <clears throat> a beautiful bit at the end of a very easy death when Simone de Beauvoir talks about her mother dying. Her mother's quite elderly and has lived a long life. And, and de Beauvoir says, it doesn't matter what age you are, it's still like an aeroplane cutting out in the sky and you in it. You know, so there's the notion, the notion of the, the kind of the, 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 the vitality, the, the, mm. the shaking vitality of life. And I'd seen, uh, I'd been working on Sonia Deloney and I'd happened on a picture called Colour Her Gone and it caught my eye because, first of all, because it's an amazing picture. It's an abstract with a Marilyn, a figurative Marilyn at the centre of it, except Marilyn standing against a <coughs> kind of wallpaper of roses, except that it's not wallpaper because the wallpaper is curling up round her as if to kind of swallow her or embrace her or engulf her. That's at the centre, this sort of figurative thing of an abstract which is pushing back against or the abstract colors are pushing back against it so there's a question of how do we figure things is abstract going to win is there a struggle between abstract and figurative what's the question of an image called color her gone which is a line from the Eben Kander famous a song my coloring book which I love except their line is color him gone so that caught my eye because it was a gender shift and I thought Pauline Boti who's that and then I remembered years ago having seen a Ken Russell film called Pop Goes the Easel, <clears throat> which I saw, again, like I say, about 10 years ago or eight, seven or eight years ago on, when it was repeated on um, Radio, uh, not Radio 4, BBC 4, a, a, a piece from the Monitor Strand about British pop art, which had figured these three male uh, pop artists and this female pop artist. And I remember thinking, God, I didn't I know about a female pop artist. And then life passes and I'd forgotten. And then I saw this and I thought, oh, it's, it's that pop artist that I saw in that amazing Ken Russell film. I'll look up and see what happened to her, where, you know, more of her work. So I looked it up and there was some more of her work, not, not that much. And I just, I wondered why none of the dates went past 1966. And then I looked up the life story and then I looked at all the work and then I looked at the life story, which is tough and tragic and short. And then I looked at the vitality of the work and I thought, I want to write about I want this, I know, I want this, 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 um, like I said, spirit and fruition and brightness up against the dark. And if I'm going to write an autumn book, that's the, that's the, you know, I just, I, it's like I've just been taken by the hand, really. Mm. It is that, that business of time fading into something else and that moment, a sort of liminal moment, I suppose. Um, and it also struck me that when at the beginning when you were talking about that time when seasons change mm. and we all um, remember everything, it's also to do with not being able to have imagination because when we're very hot, we can't imagine what it's like to be very cold. It's very difficult to bring all those things. Mm. So to conjure that in a kind of prose, to capture something, is, is that's quite a task to set yourself. No, it's not. All the seasons hold all are all held in each season. So in, in autumn, um, <clears throat> you know, summer is right behind autumn and winter is right next to autumn. Um, and to some extent, 
the leaves coming off remind us of spring. So, you know, the, the, it isn't really about that. It's like, it's like we, as we live through the seasons, we live them all at once and we live them separately at the same time. So all it is is just, again, asking <clears throat> for the, whatever the shape the book takes to be able to do multiple the multiple things that life really does do with us and for us and that we understand it by. So before we just go to the mm. audience for some questions, three more to come. Okay. Not Ringo. Three more questions. Three, no, three more, three more books, three more seasons. Three more seasons. Right? That's the plan. Yeah. And the same kind of, the same the, business the, the of trying plan, to keep up to the moment. You know, but mice and men, you know, you know the, the, the best laid plans, I mean, God knows what will happen in, in the fallout of life over the next years, but the plan is, and... <clears throat> and um, um, I, this is the this is the the hope anyway that that over the next three years there will be three more books. Mm. They'll all be written. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. Quite fast um, and quite slim. And they are already. I mean, autumn has already shunted the others into position for me. I know roughly where they are. Mm. I know where they'll take place and where they'll be. And I, I have to just allow what's going to happen contemporarily to cocktail with that to mm. see what will happen. What will come of the the surface and the, and the, as it were, the stratification. It did strike me when I was reading this book that there was just something of it, uh, although you're a very different writer, um, of Gordon Burns' last book, which oh, in which he sort of, sort of, you know, <clears throat> mm -hmm. reacted to the news stories in that kind of way that occupies a space between, mm -hmm. um, you know, the news around us and, and art. Um, it's quite an excitement to do that as a writer, I would imagine. Um, I don't know what's going to date. And that's really interesting. So that a couple of years ago, I went to talk about The Accidental, which is a novel I wrote 10 years ago, mm. um, <clears throat> more than 10 years ago. And I was reading from it in Newcastle, and I realised that what I dated about it was its um, temporal references, and that what didn't date was story. Mm. So that in itself was interesting and exciting to me, because it's the same as if you, if you watch a beloved film. Um, one of my favourite films ever... Uh, is called Céline et Julie Gaboting, Céline et Julie vont en bateau by uh, Jacques Rivette. It's a very long, if you don't like Jacques Rivette, you would be bored out of your brain by it. A um, uh, film about <clears throat> two uh, women who meet in Paris and who, uh, in a Henry James and Proustian and completely 1970, mid-70s way, wander about to try and free a, a small ghost of a girl from a house. Um, the thing about it now, watching it now all the years later, is that I can see how dated it is, and it absolutely is of its time, and that is mm. another joy of it to mm. me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's like a pleasure seeing, hearing the wild track of 1974 come through the windows from the, the Paris, you know, garden outside the flat in which he's, they're filming the, you know, it's, and it's, it's, there's something about that in itself, which I think is, you know, fair enough, with any, with any luck. You know, I'll find out. It's a, it's a, it's a project that's an experiment. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know what will last of it. I kind of know what will connect, but I don't know what will come. Ali, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Shall we have some questions from the audience? We have a roving mic. Are you ready to rove? I'm ready you to are. rove. Who would like to start us off? <clears throat> oh, go on. <laughs> Be brave. Oh, yeah, yeah go on. Go on then. Thank you. Um, Ali, you talked about the beauty of the book. That's a very beautiful book, actually, and yeah. the imagery yeah. and the whole way it's presented. Can you talk us through, you know, never ju judge a book by its cover, but can you talk us about the image and the way in which it's presented? Because it's a little bit different for you, isn't it? Um, from the other books, you mean? Well, yeah, visually, the other books. Um, like they're photographs or, you know... Well, they, they are and they aren't, because um, there have been a couple of paperbacks that have come out, and David Hockney kindly, kindly gave us the rights to use some of his, you know, very recent iPad pictures on the front of there before that. Is that right, Simon? And also on Hotel World, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, Hockney said he would allow us to use his four seasons on the front of the four books. It's the first time I've ever written a book which had a cover before I wrote it. It was a terrifying thing to do because you cannot, you can't believe that you're going to be able to that, you know, you know you're going to fuck it up, you know, you, <laughs> it's, it's bound to go wrong, you know, but, it, you know. Um, you didn't fuck it I up. I didn't fuck it up so far. <laughs> On, you know, point one, I, you know, we got there. And, um, and it, they're stunning images. They're just stunning images. And on the, this hardback, this beautiful hardback that they've made, which looks to me like a classic that someone else wrote, um, <laughs> it's, it's got this beautiful autumn colour underneath. Um, but inside, in the end pages, end papers, this lovely green, and then when you get to the end of the book, 
there's a beauty picture which is called the only blonde in the world tucked here at the back and if you haven't opened the book and had a look at it before you get there you're going to find Boti waiting for you at the end of his book and you're going to know that on the back of Hockney there's always Boti and you're going to know that all the way through this book that image was kind of seeping through towards you as you read it I just can't be more thankful for that I just think that's right I feel like something right happened about that and so and so fine by me you know so thank god and thanks thanks to my fantastic miraculous actually publishers for being able to to, to do that and so um, you know go forward <coughs> wondering what the other books will bring but wondering if it will be as good being able to have this just this beautiful image the, the, the it did it was my the, the hockney existed it's true, Simon. Simon saying the Hockney existed uh, before, the, way before, and just when I had uh, said said to Hamish Hamilton and to Simon, these, this is my plan. What shall we do? And he said, let's ask Hockney about these pictures. And Hockney came back with these and let us have these. And then so Simon brought me the. We went to the British Library to look at the original manuscript of, of to Autumn, just you know to just because um, because someone said we could and we really wanted to and it was oh my god it's so beautiful it we saw it in a room which in the british library if you go down into the 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 what should we say because it doesn't have bowels the british li library <laughs> it's you know down down into the foundations the under library the british library um uh, there's a room in which if you come out of it and they lock it all the oxygen gets sucked out so you mustn't get locked in there if you're a person because the, the stuff that's in there, they, they suck the oxygen out so that uh, if there's a fire, these things will survive. Anyway, we went into that room you know, and we looked at Two Autumn and Simon that day unrolled the Hockneys and showed me the covers and I was like, oh my God, they're so beautiful. It feels like there's a book. I hope there's a book. Um, and so, and, and, and he then and I said, I, said I, I really, really wanted Boti imagery to be in the book, there was no way that I was going to, you know, a, a, publish a book which was so much about this artist, and which um, didn't show you how good she is, and you know what vivacity I'm talking about when I'm talking about her. Um, so I could not believe our luck when they said we could do that. So thanks to Simon. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Yes, there's a question just halfway down on the aisle there. Hello. Hiya. Um, Hi. I'm just wondering about your um, relationship to surveillance. Um, I think it runs throughout your work. I'm in particular thinking about the um, how to be both seen of pornography and okay. her watching it over yeah. and over again. And yeah. I think it kind of, I think it's a really interesting um, relationship that you have. I, I imagine it kind of even in the aspect that you read, kind of runs through her watching him through the window. How does that, for you, interact with your idea of time? Oh, okay. Um, Sorry. <laughs> tell me, is there more a more timely narrative that all of us in this room, all of us in this room, we all have to put up with this narrative of how we're seen by machines right now? It is the narrative of this time in our lives and in this time in this world, the Western world, but particularly in this country. So actually Autumn is a lot about identity and, you know, how you can't get a hospital appointment or a, or a you know, a, a passport. A passport. Yeah. Without your passport, you can't, you can't, you know, unless you can prove who you are by means of this little booklet, which you can hold in your, have in your pocket and wave about to, to prove an identity. That's your identity, not this. This isn't my identity. That thing is my identity when it comes down to it. So the book is very much about what an identity is, you know. Um, surve surveillance um, is, we have, we have to understand how we are seen, how we see, what would be the way we would prefer to be seen, whether we would prefer it to be by a machine eye or by the kind of eye that produces this and looks at this and gets the life and the joy and the state of being that we know is what being really is. All the time we're being asked and pushed further back and back and back into this little box, which is going to be our identity. Um, chip or barcode or, <clears throat> you know, thing which you can, you know, show to a, a machine at a border. That's who we are now. No, it isn't. That's my interest. My in, in fact, my interest is, grows more and more and more as, as the, the, the borders, as it were, of identity push further and further back. Um, we, ha we have to address those things. Otherwise, 
you can't write a novel. I mean, you can't, you know, it's like, it's like missing out what's really happening in the narrative of now. It strikes me that one of the, just to add a sort of rider to that, this is one of the ways that you connect very closely with, with Wolf, who I know is your, you know, a great influence and love of yours. Mm. But she would write narratives of great emotion and concentration and, and observation, yeah. but always there with the sort of hints of, of society around, sometimes more than others. I'm trying to imagine what Wolf would have made of surveillance, because she would have made something incredibly witty and brilliant about it. And... Um, and I know that before Angela Carter died, um, she said that the great uh, subject that had to be tackled for the next, someone had asked her for the next, you know, the, the coming time, she just simply said the word surveillance, you know, and uh, she died in the early 90s. And we are so much further on from there now. You had a question. Um, it's not actually about surveillance, but it's just... Um... Okay, yeah. Okay, it's not actually about surveillance. It was just because you talked about the beauty of that book. You have to talk into the mic, really. Sorry, because you yeah, talked about yeah, the beauty sorry. of that book yeah. and um, yeah. the physical yeah. nature of the book. Yeah. It just came into my head as you were talking about surveillance and technology and the digital world we all live in. Is it going to be an e-book? Of course. It is going to be an e-book. It is, isn't it? And you... So is it already an e-book? <laughs> yeah, it's already an e-book. Yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is, there, is there anything... Do you think there's anything sad about that? I mean, I spend my life thinking that somehow the sensation of holding a book, particularly a beautiful, you know, linen-bound book with this Hockney cover as it is, that anybody who opens it on a Kindle is not going to have the same sensation. No, Do, but, but that... they'll have a Kindle sensation. And, are you, and you're happy with I'm, that? I'm quite happy with that. Okay. I, think, I think all the ways of reading, great. More ways of reading, fantastic. Make more ways of reading. If, as many ways of reading as there are, let's have them. <clears throat> because uh, there's still this, and there's still Kindle, and there's still whatever other way people will find reading. The, I, I, I was really convinced about e-books when I saw Toni Morrison speaking, and she said, oh, they're great, you can really turn this, the type up really high, and I can really use that now because my glasses are so bad and my eyes are bad. <laughs> and there's, some, there's just something very, basically, very useful, very round the world, very f immediate. We, we ran into an interesting um, problem with how to be both in the e-book, however, because we found we had defeated e-books, in fact, because you cannot have... No, you cannot have either way on an e-book. You can choose between the either way. You can go, OK, I'll start with this and I'll start with that one. Actually, actually, most, most people just start at the beginning and then they get annoyed because at 50% it's over and they've got the other version of the book tacked on the end and they're like, this is just the same book as I've read except the other way around. So people, 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 who, read, people who read the e-books... Um, in fact, when I, when I was up for the, 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 one of the prizes, I think it was the Orange Prize, one of the papers did a statistical count of how many people had got so much, so, so much of the way through all the books and there was like... You know, people had only got to something like fifty-three percent of mine. I was like, they've all read it because they all got to fifty-three percent because they, you know, they read fifty percent and then stopped. Because, so e-books can be defeated. That's <laughs> um, what I'm saying. Yeah. I, well, yeah. So, we, but as long as we have the book, and we'll never lose the book, man. We'll never lose the book. We'll never. Do you think we will? I really, really hope not. How could we? There's there, books since e-books. Books have practically nearly defeated e-books as it is because the number of people buying Kindles and e-book readers has really <clears throat> dropped. Um, but since um, uh, e-books started to happen, publishers have upped their game because they know that the, that the reason people love books is that tactile thing that you said. Therefore, let's make it really tactile. Let's make it the most beautiful thing so that once you've picked it up, you can't put it down and you're going to buy it in that shop. You know? So there's, there's something about paying attention, again, to the object the gorgeous object, the winged object that a book is. Because it is, and the, thing, the wonderful thing about a book is when you're looking on a screen, you can open a screen, but it's not the same as the open of a book, which allows you, again, a perspective, one side to the other side. I mean, the book is, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a travelling companion for centuries. We're never going to lose the book, never. Mm. We have one last question. Yes, there. Oh, sorry, there's one there, and then we will... We'll have two. We'll have both. Um, so Sue Tate is about to, to talk because she's the person I was telling you about who's the Pauline Boti. No pressure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think it's a related question, which is about reproduction. And when I was reading the book, 
I was really excited by Daniel describing Boti's works to Elizabeth. And they have their eyes closed and you reproduce the pictures in words. Yeah. Now, I really know the images, so straight away I got the images in my head. Other people will have other things in their head, yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. And I know that through the book you pick up on notions of reproduction, and I think it's related to e-books being a kind of reproduction. And, and collage itself is by juxtaposing things so they reproduce differently. And I wonder if you could just say a bit more about that theme, which excites me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It excites me too. Um, um, I hope that point in the book where Daniel <coughs> says to Elizabeth, right, we're going to play um, every story tells a picture or every picture tells a story, which, which do you choose? And he plays every story tells a picture and he, make, he makes her close her eyes and he describes pictures to her without telling her anything. I hope that will work for readers, not just be annoying. Because, you know, I hope it's okay, I hope it works. It's that, you know, they describe a couple of pictures and with any luck it goes into the imagination in a way which is kind of unalloyed, you know, because you don't have an image. So there's that first thing about not having an image. And then if you want to go and Google it, you can if you like. But there's something about coming to an image a new way. Boti was really interested in coming to an image a new way because one of the main tenets, this is right, isn't it, about, of, of her, her artwork, of her art belief, <clears throat> was that the world is made of images. Therefore, paint the image, not the person. Paint the thing that you see that's already an image. Reproduce it in paint rather than, sometimes in collage, but she more and more, she, yeah, she, she, she grew to paint. She made things that looked like collage, but that were painted painstakingly painted. In other words, you visit an image via the art of the image and it reminds you that it's an image. Therefore, you can know that the things around us are images. When you understand that something is a construct, then you can begin to think about it, understand how construct works, work with the notion of constructs, even change the notion or, or the, the construct. It allows us a dialogue, a space, with what imagery and the image are. Um, so to, to, <clears throat> to some extent, that is really also at the core of the book, which asks questions about the ways in which images are foisted on us all the time, as if they are simple truth, reality. Bodhi pointed out immediately the artifice nature of image. She pointed that out in, in 1960, one, two, three, four, five, and six. And it was 50 years ago, and we still haven't got to grips with the image. And we're just beginning to understand, as they batter us more and more and more with more and more imagery, that you know our relationship with the image is not that simple. Yeah. And that language plays a game with that as well. And that language plays a game with that as well. Mm. Is a reproduction. Is a re yeah, that's right. Exactly. So the novel is just is another way to tell the story. So it is about the ways in which stories get told, and um, how those stories will work on us. Um, and how we work with them and tell them to ourselves. Yeah. And there was okay, there's one last so, question there. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Hi. Um, I'm slightly worried that this is a bit of a non-question, and I think Don't the last be. one was Don't was be. a good one to end on. Don't but worry. I'm going to ask the this, final question, so it's this, not the last one. With us talking about um, machines and sort of reproducing images. Um, I and so I'm a journalist for a 3D printing website. Wow! And I was wondering. Are you a person or a 3D? <laughs> I'm actually a machine. <laughs> no, nice I was you. wondering about your views, perhaps on 3D printing, because like they can, they are scanning people and recreating them, but also they're scanning artworks and recreating artworks and cr creating reproductions, and it, it's kind of this view of of a person, like when you said a, a person viewed by a machine, that's just what really got to me and I was like, this is, this seems to be uh, a kind of direction that it's going in. Okay. Thank and you. I just wondered what you thought no, about it. No, it's a great question. Um, technology is only ever what we do with it. Um, and technology, I remember seeing Laurie Anderson years and years ago and she had lots of banks of technology all around her like this kind of, you know, musical instruments and things which should make the most amazing noises and it was all wires and electricity and, and someone asked her, uh, why, what's it like to work with all that around you? And she picked up a pencil, she held it in the air and she said, it's just exactly the same as this. And it is exactly the same as this because whatever we make, 
whatever we make with, if you see what I mean, whatever we use, whatever we work with, whatever our technologies or our times bring us, we'll be human with them and we'll make good and bad and different and indifferent use of them. So there's always a moral question in whatever we do with whatever we have. And there's always a metaphysical question in whatever we do with whatever we have. Um, probably the, the mobile phone is the most mournful of our inventions when you think about the, 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 the phones ringing after people have been, you know, killed in horrible ways. The phones ringing in the dark in places. The, there's, there's never any getting away from mortality, morality, and to some extent, uh, the energy that means that as human beings we'll use them one way or another, but it's still going to be metaphysical in the end. 3D reproducing. <clears throat> One of the most exciting things I have ever seen, this goes back to Del Cosso when I was um, working on How to Be Both. One of the most exciting projects that I've ever seen, one of the most exciting things I've ever seen on any screen anywhere, is the 3D entry of a machine eye into a painting by Del Cosso, which is in the National Portrait Gallery. It takes you, there's a, they've been re, they've been putting together a, one, two, three, four, five, six, six, seven or eight paintings by Del Cosso, which all at one point hung in Bologna Cathedral um, and now are all over the world. There are none in Bologna anymore. One of them is in the National Gallery here and the others are in Washington and, you know, Spain and, and Germany. So they're going around 3D imaging these paintings at, you know, at, at that X-ray extent. And it's the most exciting thing in the world to see, watch the eye go through and then recreate, to be able to recreate that polyptych uh, on the wall, which they're going to do in Bologna Cathedral at some point. Just the glory of it will be possible again, regardless of the fact that the artworks are in different places. Yes, I think that's brilliant. And it was, I can't tell you, it was almost, it was almost orgasmic looking at watching the, entering the painting and coming out of the painting. It was the most, it was one of the most vital experiences I've ever had on any screen anywhere. So it's my answer to that. Thank you. Mm. My final question was actually entirely unrelated, although he did, you've mentioned him tonight and he comes up in the book, although you immediately say, no, not that one, the other one. Um, you're dissolving it? boundaries and forms. I wanted to just ask you a little bit about Bob Dylan and what, oh, you, Dylan. what okay. you felt about that. It's a cheeky final question. Yay! <laughs> Good. <laughs> Dylan, wonderful. Right now, in the world, America is going absolutely, completely fucking mad. It is, it is more divisive than Brexit. It is seriously, seriously all across the country, one side, the other side, one side, the other side. A figure like Dylan, to be honoured by the Nobel, who changed poetry, politics, song, moved the ballad form, into a modern form, made it possible socially and aesthetically uh, to care about a ballad at the, through the 60s, opened the 60s again. Great, I'm really pleased that happened. Um, the, the story about Pauline Boaty meeting Dylan is Boaty was, um, you tell me if I'm wrong, tell, correct me, but uh, Boaty was uh, uh, seeing a, a TV producer at the time, a married TV producer, um, and um, he was making a film and he had invited a, a young, not at all famous singer to come and be in a drama that he was making. Was it BBC? No. A, a private commission. Um, and so he'd come across to make this drama in the really cold winter of 62, 63, when everything was absolutely frozen. So Boti and, and this man picked him up at the airport um, and kind of bussed him around, uh, drove him around London for quite about a week, some, some time. Anyway, um, he slept on Boti's floor. Nobody knew he was Bob Dylan. She knocked on the door of one of her friends who was having a dinner party and said, could you look after Bob? We have to go out. <laughs> so, you know, he sat in the back by the curtains and the, the, the host remembers him sort of playing some songs, you know. And then they saw him off on a plane and off he went. Anyway, but he, he wrote a song, which he's only ever recorded once and I, you can't get a copy of it. It's called Liverpool Gal. The, the words, the, the lyrics exist online. Um, and it's about, it seems to be about Boaty. It could be, it seems to be about... The hostess of the party <laughs> thinks it's about her, apparently. So, but it's about, you know, a, a, a woman that he hangs out in this kind of snowy, frozen, you know, on the edge of a street and then in a really cold room where you've got your coat on and you've got to, trying to keep warm in a fire and it's about a moment which could have changed his life but he had to leave because... And then the girl allows him to go and he's like, I've never seen anything so liberating and freeing as someone just saying, no, it's all right, I don't care, we had the night, off you go. Which, again, sounds to me like it's not Jane, it's Bozzi. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> Ali, thank you so much. That was so wonderful. Cool. You're going to be signing books okay. and, yeah. and right. although not over the picture of Bodhi, Bodhi's never, picture, I don't think. Um, thank no. you so much. Thank you to you all for coming. Thank you for having us. And thank you, Alex. Uh, please Pleasure. do come and buy Ali's book. Thank you, Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>